Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. On each episode of our show, we'll speak with a top scientist in fields ranging from biology to sociology. Today, we'll talk with Sandra Faber, co-editor of the Annual Review of Astronomy and Astrophysics. She's a department chair and professor of astronomy and astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz and on staff of the University of California Observatories. She recently won the esteemed Bauer Prize for her work on the formation of galaxies and her service to the astronomy community. Professor Faber, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a a real pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this. Can you pinpoint a moment in your childhood or early education when you first knew you would spend your life studying the stars? Gosh, no. I think that moment didn't come until much later. And there were two reasons for that. First of all, when I was young, I was living in a family that was not scientific. There was only one person who had gone to college. And uh, I didn't get exposed very much to how people actually did science. So science was kind of a remote thing that was wonderful to study, but other people didn't, did it, not me. And also there was the additional problem of when I was growing up in those years, this was the 50s, There weren't any women scientists, and in fact, I had no idea growing up what was in store for me. I saw that the women around me were housewives, and that didn't interest me a whole lot, but I had real no hope that I'd move on and do anything very different. So it wasn't until much later when I started going to high school, and I got a lot of encouragement from my high school teachers. And finally, I went to Swarthmore College and began to rub shoulders with real astronomers. At that point, I could see that there was a path. You went to graduate school, you got a PhD, you worked for a university, etc. The whole thing didn't become very real to me until quite late. And what was it about astronomy in particular that drew you? Well, I always loved astronomy. I, as a kid, I was a science geek. I studied the weather I had a microscope and I looked at bugs from pond water. I studied spiders. Um, I did all of those things, but I, I was always very drawn to astronomy. I didn't have a telescope, but my dad had a pair of binoculars. And I would go out on a summer night and lie down on the, the grass and just take my binoculars and my star charts and scan the heavens. And I, I read books, simple books, that people gave me about astronomy. And uh, I, I, I thought the questions were very interesting, deep, and important. What, what, give me an example of one of the questions that really intrigued you. Well, I'll answer that by hearkening back to my application to Swarthmore, because this is the time when my scientific curiosity was maturing a bit. So Swarthmore, you know, they ask you about to write essays that somehow reveal something about you. And the question was, what do you think you would do with a Swarthmore education? And I answered back that what I was really interested in was the origin and evolution of the universe, but I wasn't sure how you could study that. You could study it maybe by studying the universe in the large, and I understood that that was astronomy, so I said maybe I want to be an astronomer. But then I I had an interesting idea. Maybe the way to study the universe was to understand its laws microscopically. You know, if you could understand how matter behaves, where it came from, and all of that, then uh, maybe that's the key to understanding how the universe evolves. 
And I said, and so maybe I should be a chemist because I didn't really understand that what I meant was particle physics. I'd never heard of particle physics. So I came to Swarthmore and I, I started to take both astronomy and chemistry. I didn't like the chemistry. It was too much like cooking, doing these experiments at the lab. But when I saw the telescope at Swarthmore, they had a small refracting telescope. When I saw that, I was just absolutely hooked. It was like um, you know, a, a lamb looking at its mother for the first time. I was imprinted on this gorgeous big machine and I started to observe with that and I, I got completely hooked. So I guess it's hard for me to remember the past but I remember this essay very clearly and in some sense I anticipated there, I take some credit for this, the entire development of cosmology that ensued during the 1970s up to now because it has been truly a marriage of particle physics and in the small and uh, astronomy in the large, and this is really how we've come to understand the universe. In your autobiographical sketch, you talk about some lucky breaks you had and other opportunities that you had that aren't really available to students today. Um, you talk about having children in the middle of your first professorship and getting a tenure-track position right out of school. Um, what advice do you have for young astronomers getting into the field today? I think getting into the field today is a lot tougher, and I would say it's especially true of women. Because now, uh, there seems to be a tradition, after you get your PhD, you circulate through one and maybe two postdoctoral fellowships. And that means that you're pulling up stakes every two, three, four years, moving to an entirely new place, setting up household all over again, and, and starting a new phase of your research career. So I, I really, I find it hard to give advice to this generation of young scientists, because I think they have it a lot harder than I did. Can you talk a little bit about the balance that you found between family and work? It's always been very, very important to me to have a balance between family and work. And I actually think that my work has been helped, especially in those early years, by having to tear myself away and do something different for some hours a day. I actually don't have that as much now, and I, I think I'm overall not as efficient per unit time. I get more done now because I have more hours, but I don't think I'm as efficient um, as, I, as I was back then. So we had a daily routine. Uh, I do best when I divide up my attention and spend some hours focusing completely on one thing and then switching attention and doing something different. So that was my mode then. I would come to work and I would largely forget about my family completely unless somebody called and said that a child was, was sick. But then at 5 o'clock I went to pick up my kids and I was doing nothing except focusing on them for the next four or five hours until it was bedtime. And that, that was very refreshing. It was an excellent break. Not to mention weekends when we spent a huge amount of time with our children. I would like to mention here, I, have, I owe a huge debt to my, my spouse, Andy, because he was always very willing to fill in, more than fill in, take his share, his half of the share. And uh, he's been you know, a great dad, and we've been a real team in parenting. It hasn't been just me. In your graduate work, were you still one of the only women in your field? When I went to graduate school, it was beginning to change. 
I had a small graduate class. I went to Harvard. There were only five students. Two of us were female and three were men. So already you could see the pendulum start to swing. But there was quite a lot of um, resistance to women out there. And in fact, I can tell a story about this woman in graduate school. We became very good friends. And a few years later, we're looking for jobs, and she got a postdoctoral fellowship at Caltech. And a very famous professor from Caltech was visiting Harvard, knew about her, wanted to meet her, said hello, and immediately launched into the following statement. He said, looking at her pleasantly, you know, I really have nothing against women in science, and then there was a little pause, as long as they don't get pregnant. Wow. Now, as it happens, we were both thinking about getting pregnant at that time, and she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as, as a measure of how things have changed, she was so intimidated, she didn't speak up and say, well, you know, that's completely ridiculous. And by the way, let me tell you something about myself. She, did, she didn't say that. She meekly kept quiet. How do you sort of maintain your status in the scientific community in, a, in an atmosphere like that? I think I was personally very much helped by having a demeanor that is kind of unisex. What does that mean? Well, in the sense that I think that the world at large and scientists in general are less tolerant of either too meek or too aggressive behavior on on the part of women. I think more latitude is tolerated in men's behavior. Women are really expected to be quite businesslike supportive, not passive, but not aggressive. And if you stray to either side, you know, you can get labeled as, uh, well, I won't use the words that come immediately to mind. So I was very fortunate in that um, my own personal style fit these needs perfectly. And when you did leave to start a family, did you do you feel like you had to work harder to come back and sort of regain your position in the in the community? I never left to have a family. I didn't take any maternity leave of any significance. I had this is a measure of how things have changed. Um, there wasn't any such thing as maternity leave in the University of California then, and so I had my first child nine months after I took my job here. And I took two weeks off, and I took another two weeks kind of half-time. And then I was back at work full-time. And, well, full in, you know, in the sense of 40-hour weeks. Professors, when they really work full-time, are working more like 70 or 80 hours a week, and I didn't do that for years and years and years. And uh, the, the, the routine was pretty much the same with the second child three and a half years later. And did that hold you back at all? I felt very much when I was um, an assistant professor with young children, I envied my male colleagues that they had more time to spend on their career than I did. And I, I think probably it held me back somewhat, but um, it also probably made me more ruthless about trying to limit my other involvement. It made me focus. Let's talk about your work on the Hubble telescope. Uh, you were part of the original wide field camera instrument group back in uh, the late 80s, uh, and you've recently submitted a new proposal for Hubble. Can you talk about your vision for the telescope and how things will be different this time around? Well, Hubble, I think, has been the most productive telescope in the history of astronomy. 
and the, the discoveries that you could just tick off here have just been phenomenal. It's hard to communicate now the degree of incredible anticipation that astronomers had before the launch of Hubble. Uh, it's not as though we underestimated the telescope far from it. We knew very well what it was likely to do for us, and so there was an incredible fever of excitement. So when Challenger exploded and delayed the launch of Hubble for over four years, that was a very, very painful event. Um, so, as you know, the original Hubble had a fatal optical flaw, and when that was fixed and the, and the beautiful pictures began to come in, it really was a whole new universe. But the wonderful thing about Hubble is that it's been remade several times over. It's in low Earth orbit, which means that astronauts can go up and fix it, service it, and put in new instrumentation. I was on a committee not too long ago that was arguing for one more servicing mission for Hubble, and I set to calculating how many, uh, by what factor Hubble is better now than it was when it was first launched, and I came up with a factor of 60. And that's just because better cameras and better instrumentation have been installed in the meantime. So this last servicing mission is, the, is kind of the last in a long series of wonderful successes. And for me, the most important thing is a new camera that's going to operate at longer wavelengths. And since the universe is expanding, the light rays of distant galaxies are all shifted to the red. And to follow that out in space and time, you have to have a camera that images at longer wavelengths of light. And that's what this camera is going to do. We've had our first pictures from it now, and it is truly phenomenal, wonderfully sensitive, and we're all very, very excited about using it. And you said that your proposal has a, a what was it, a 5% chance of being accepted? Yeah, I think it's just about that. We, we learned later that 37 proposals in this category were received, and they're probably going to make available maybe two or three, something like that. So assuming that everybody is equally deserving, it's a, like a 5 or 10% chance. What is it about your proposal that, that should be accepted? Well, my proposal was in a particular area, and uh, it's an area which Hubble has pursued in the past. Maybe you've heard of something called the Hubble Deep Field. It's an example of an extremely deep exposure. The ultra-deep field was taken again later, even deeper. These are very long pictures of certain regions of the sky that penetrate out to very large distances and see galaxies as they were back in time. So my proposal was in the same spirit, but to do this now with this new camera and see even farther to earlier times. So a good idea, following in a, an honorable and very productive tradition. There will be many proposals in this particular area. And what made our proposal the best, I think, was that we, um, we combined various levels of exposure into one proposal. We suspect that our competitors will either focus on very deep exposures in short areas or short exposures over longer areas. We stood back and said, hmm, if we were the time assignment committee for Hubble, wanting to do the best for this area of science, let's try to make a balanced package that has all the right things in it in one place. And so that's what we tried to do. Now, tell me a little bit about the, the optical design flaw. Well, 
uh, this is the design, um, it, this is the construction flaw actually in Hubble. The design was fine, it was just that they polished the mirror, the main mirror, to the wrong curve. And so when the telescope went up and started taking pictures, uh, they, they didn't look like they were just out of focus. They looked worse than that. Part, part of the mirror was in focus and part was out of focus. It's an optical aberration called spherical aberration. And it took some time to discover this because there were a lot of pre-picture pre checkouts that had to be executed and they were not working because the optics weren't working and people didn't realize why this was. So there were a lot of experts who were ostensibly in charge of checking out Hubble, but it fell to my camera team, and me in particular and a, and a postdoctoral fellow, to really think about this. And we coaxed project manager management to take a series of pictures moving the telescope through focus, moving the secondary mirror in and out and this series of pictures showed a very distinctive series of patterns. And when we saw that, we knew immediately that it was spherical aberration. And we looked at it, we even measured how big it was. And so we delivered the message to the project that this was a horrible, horrible flaw and that Hubble would never work in its present state. What was it like to be a, a part of that team to realize that something that had you know, so much time had been put in, time that you spent yourself, and that, you know, millions of dollars to find out that it had this terrible flaw? That's a very interesting question. And I was aware of my feelings at the time, because actually, I was completely conflicted. On the one hand, I was very upset that Hubble wasn't right. On the other hand, it's hard for me to convey this here on the phone, but that was probably the most interesting science investigation of my entire career uh, because nobody knew why this telescope wasn't working. And it was, it was really a very small number of people who, it was a combination of politics and optics trying to get project management to take the observations that we needed in order to diagnose the problem. This went on for about six weeks and I was going to project meetings, listening to results, buttonholing people in the hall, trying to convince them to do things my way, bringing home new images and analyzing them. It was exciting. That's what I'm trying to tell you. We really felt that we were on the trail of something very fundamental. And so it was paradoxical. On the one hand, we solved the scientific problem and we felt a thrill that any scientist would feel on the other hand, in solving the problem, we showed that Hubble was a disaster. I've never been so conflicted before or since, but probably also never as fully engaged as I was then. You were recently awarded the Bauer Prize, uh, acknowledging three decades of your contributions to the field of astronomy. How does it feel to think back over 30 years of your work, and what stands out to you as the most significant accomplishment in that time? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. I don't really think in terms of accomplishment. Uh, I think more in terms of enjoyment. And overall, what really stands out for me is the fact that by choosing to work on galaxies when I was in graduate school, I chose galaxies because so little was known about them. They seemed like the next big thing. And I, that was a, a very acute observation. It's been a very, very productive field of research. So 
I got in on the ground floor. I rubbed shoulders with some of the very best people and learned from them. Opportunities came my way one after another. And so I just kind of feel as though, yeah, I've been a participant in the movie, but mainly it's been my privilege to watch this movie unfold and with enough training to really understand it. So my, my thrill is the fact that, you know, 30, 40 years later, I'm going to leave the field with a huge amount of understanding about where my topic galaxies, where they came from. And it's not that so much that I contributed to that, but that I managed in the process to understand a lot. Along the same lines, uh, some of the many of the theories and technology that you helped develop remain a big part of cosmology today. Um, in a world where things can change so quickly, what does it mean to you to have your work stand up to the test of time? Well, I think that actually makes me feel very good. If I, if I could point to one single achievement, it would be collaborating with two of my colleagues here at Santa Cruz, Premack and Blumenthal. Together, we wrote a paper in 1984 that laid out the bare bones of everything we know today about galaxy formation. The gravitational clustering of dark matter and the later infall of ordinary gas to form stars to make galaxies, the galaxies that we see. So I feel now that that paper is the seminal paper in galaxy formation and I feel really great that I managed to be a co-author of that paper. What do you see as the most significant find in astronomy over the past 30 years, either your work or the work of someone else? I would say that there are two significant finds in astronomy. One of them is what really my work has been embedded in, and that is this uh, the understanding of the general sweep of events from the Big Bang to where we are now in the Milky Way. That's not just one find. It was a lot of finds, but it's a, it's a worldview and, uh, it, you know, it's an intellectual edifice, which I think is really um, most remarkable. We can sit here on our little planet and, and figure out what happened over 14 billion years of time. It's testimony to human ingenuity. The other thing that I think is going to be important, and that is a more recent discovery of all of these extrasolar planets. We now know 500 of them. And, you know, dozens or more are being discovered every year. My observatory is actually a leader in this. And, uh, again, it's, it's hard to know how this knowledge ultimately will be important for us. But over a million or a billion years or so, I think it's possible that somehow we're going to interact with these planets or maybe their inhabitants in some way or another. So uh, I think that's an interesting possibility. Finally, what would you like the Annual Review's audience to know about you or about astronomy in general? Well, I'm a great proponent of astronomical knowledge. And very often people, they ask me, you know, why should we be doing astronomy? And it's not so easy to answer right off the cuff. It's not like chemistry, for example, better living through chemistry or, or physics, you know, nuclear power, any of those things. But I actually would argue that astronomical knowledge is the most important knowledge we have for the human race. And here's why I think this. I, I think that it's astronomy that puts us in perspective. 
it tells us where we come from and cosmically where we're going. So there are many lessons that you learn from this. First of all, astronomy tells us that we're all stardust. All of the atoms, the heavy elements in our body were generated in supernovae. They went out into interstellar space. They agglomerated into the solar system and finally five billion years later they're making you and me. So there's an unbroken chain of cause and effect here. So if we want to understand our roots, it's not just where our ancestors came from on Earth. It's really our cosmic roots. We are one with our universe. And that has good things and bad things about it. Uh, it, it, it means that in some sense um, we're limited. We're prisoners of the laws of physics. Astronomy tells us that there really aren't miracles. Maybe there was an original miracle in the Big Bang, we don't understand that, but after that, one thing follows from another in predictable fashion. And we can use that lesson to think about consequences here and now on Earth. So what we're doing today, according to the laws of physics, is going to have consequences. And this is all about the environment and global warming. And astronomy again says, Cosmic stage, the nearest help is very far away. Don't count on colonizing Mars. I mean, colonizing Mars is a million times harder than colonizing Antarctica, and nobody would even think about doing that. These notions are totally ridiculous. Uh, but at the same time, it holds out hope. It says that the sun and the solar system are going to live another billion or two years. So, you know... We have the gift of cosmic time. There's motivation here, if you care about the legacy of our species, to get through this very difficult time, which is here and now, and live sustainably on our planet. And if we can make that transition, then, wow, there's just no telling what we might be able to achieve and do. Professor Faber, thank you so much for talking with us. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.